tonight's subject is buried and forgotten by God. If you looked on a map of the United States and you looked closely enough, you would find in uh, the state of New Mexico, the town of Las Cruces, Las Cruces, New Mexico, and 25 miles, what's that, 40 kilometers east of Las Cruces, New Mexico, is the largest military installation in the United States. It is the White Sands Missile Testing Range. Now, a number of years ago, decades and decades ago, as a matter of fact, a prospector named Doc Noss told his wife that he was in there in the White Sands Range. He somehow had permission to go in there and fossick around. And as he was sitting on the top of Victoria Peak, which is 5,000 feet above sea level, he told his wife, I felt a breeze coming up the leg of my pants. I thought at first it must be a snake, but I looked and there was nothing there at all. And then I realized as I looked further, there was a little hole in the ground. And so I started the search and I moved some dirt away and I uncovered a series of caverns. And she must have been so impressed by this. And he said that he found a treasure trove of gold and jewels. He said, I also saw skeletons there, skeletons there. And this got people very excited over the years. Numerous people have tried to find these caverns. Actually, they could care less about the caverns. What they're looking for is Doc Noss's loot. Well, it's not his, of course, but the loot that he was talking about. Oh, could they find it? Could they find it? It is said that someone went in there and in an attempt to move some earth and rock, detonated an explosive charge and caused the whole thing to come crashing down, meaning that the treasure is buried there. Buried treasure. Buried but not forgotten. I haven't ever taken a trip to the White Sands Missile Range. I think that would be a dodgy proposition, being as they test missiles there. And Uncle Sam does not want you roaming around in his backyard. But I want to tell you tonight about something that is buried and forgotten. Not buried and not forgotten. People still talk about Doc Noss, well, not Doc Nosses, but they still talk about that treasure trove he claims to have uncovered. It has not been forgotten, and it never will be. But tonight we want to talk about something that is full of significance, eternal significance, that has been buried and forgotten by God. Now look in Revelation chapter 14. This is part of the final gospel message to go to the world. And it says in verse 12, here is the patience of the saints. Here are they that keep the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus. Now let's just hit the rewind button and go back. Here is the patience of the what? Saints. That's pretty awesome. First, uh, not first, Revelation chapter, first Revelation, first Revelation chapter 15 and verse 2 says that there are a group of people standing on the sea of glass mingled with fire. They had gotten the victory over the beast, over his image and over his mark and over the number of his name and they stand on the sea of glass having the harps of God. Now I want you to think about this. It's impressive that here are a group of people called saints at all. Because think about what we've been through as a species. 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and verse 55. Oh, death, where is thy sting? Oh, grave, where is thy victory? The apostle Paul wrote those words. Now, you know that sin entered the world and brought death. Sin brought death. And here, Paul says, oh, death, where are you now? Oh, death. Uh, what has happened to you? You see, the Bible speaks to us about this. Paul said in Romans 6 and verse 23 that the wages of sin is, come on now, death, but the what of God, gift of God, is what? Eternal life through whom? 
through Jesus Christ our Lord. You see, the Bible is a book of redemption. Don't be thinking it's a book of condemnation. It's a book of redemption and hope. In the first chapter of the Bible, oh my goodness, what a magnificent start. The earth was created. In the second chapter, something magnificent happens. Adam and Eve are made by God, handmade. And then in the third chapter, that's where everything kind of goes to seed because sin entered the world. Third chapter. Third chapter. How quickly humanity went from the very heights to the very depths. Three chapters. But in Genesis chapter 3 and verse 15, in answer to sin, I wonder if, if we collectively had been God and Adam and Eve had sinned, we might have just said, nah, done with them. God didn't do that. Even though it would cost the life of Jesus, God said, no, wait a minute, I'll do something here for these people. Genesis 3 verse 15 says, God said, I will put enmity between you and the woman. Speaking to the serpent, the devil, I'll put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed, your offspring, and her seed, her descendants. Jesus said, it shall bruise your head. You shall bruise his heel. So Messiah would come. He'd be bruised. Uh, the prophet Isaiah used that same word in that beautiful chapter, chapter 53. He would be bruised, but Satan would be destroyed. We get to the prophecies of the Bible that tell the story of the earth in earth's last days. And they exhibit this wonderful fact that the prophecies of the Bible deal with redemption. In the book of Daniel, you read about beasts and then kingdoms and horns that are kingdoms. You read about a young man named Daniel who was taken to Babylon as a slave. You read about a ruthless Babylonian king who was a wretched sort of an individual. But God reached him and saved him through the ministry of Daniel. Isn't that something? If I said Daniel, you say beasts. No, no, let's change that. I say Daniel and you say salvation. Let's try that. Daniel. Salvation. It's a book of salvation. Nebuchadnezzar, the last rascal on planet earth that you would think would be saved, was saved by almighty God. In the book of Revelation, you read about an antichrist, a power in earth's last days that will lead people away from the pure faith of the word of God. But we read the opening salvo of the book of Revelation says that the book is the, read it with me, the revelation of, there you go. The reason the book exists is to reveal Jesus to us. And look what the Bible says in the fifth verse of the book of Revelation. Unto him that loved us and washed us from our sins in his own what? Blood and has made us kings and priests unto God and his father. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. That's right. What a beautiful verse. That's the book of Revelation. Five and six verses in. In Revelation chapter 14 and verse 7, there is a call to worship him that made heaven and earth and the seas and the fountains of water. And then in the last chapter of Revelation, we see this beautiful picture. It says, blessed are those who do his commandments that they may have the right to the tree of life and may enter through the gates into the city. Isn't that remarkable? You've got people who were blessed by God. I'll make you with my own hands, put you in a perfect garden. Boom! Sin entered the world. Third chapter. And if you were reading the Bible from the beginning and you got to, oh, God's people went, ran amok three chapters in, 
and you realize you got 1186 chapters left to read, you might be thinking that things are going to really bottom out. Well, they do, but then they get better and better and better and better so that the last chapter of the Bible has God's people having the right, isn't it interesting, that they may have the right to the tree of life. God's people who mucked up so badly now are depicted as being saved. What an amazing God. And so what you see is that God has a specific plan to deal with sin and to deal with the sin in our lives and to get us from the wrong side of the ledger to the right side of the ledger, to have us move from lost to found, from dead to alive and kicking. If you look into the Bible, you see many stories of people who were redeemed, transformed. One of them was a man named Saul. Saul, not King Saul, but Saul, probably named after King Saul, being as he came from the same tribe. Saul became Paul. He was called by Jesus to be an apostle and then led, blinded, to a man named Ananias who said to him, the God of our fathers has chosen you that you should know his will and see the just one and hear the voice of his mouth. For you will be his witness to all men of what you have seen and heard. And then he said something to him. Now, keep in mind, this guy was a scoundrel. He persecuted God's people. He went here to there and here and there looking for true believers and and persecuting them, making sure that they were put to death. This guy was a wretch. But God called him. And when he called him, the sinful man, he said to him through Ananias, Arise and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on the name of the Lord. So God picks us up out of the muck, and he's going to set us up on a high place, elevate us, restore us, bless us, honor us. And along the way, he transforms us, and we recognize that part of that transformation process is something called baptism. Now, this is important, and we don't want to overlook this. It's it's super important. Jesus spoke directly to this. He spoke, and he said, Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy... Baptizing, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. And, lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Amen. Now, Jesus was clear about this. The Bible is clear about this. God is looking to move us from, from dead to alive, from lost to found, and he wants us to restore us, not merely legally, but experientially, and bind our heart to his heart. You know, we can talk about the last great crisis of Earth's final days, but man, who's going to stand in those days? Not people who know the most, but people who know the one that's worth knowing, people who know Jesus, and of course, he will indeed educate them so that in their minds, they do understand and believe what the Bible teaches. So, such a fundamental subject, baptism. Ask 10 different people, you might get 11 different explanations as to what baptism is really all about, even though Paul wrote to the Ephesians and said, one Lord, one faith, and how many baptisms? One baptism. Now, our example in all things is Jesus. And when you look at Jesus' example in the Bible, this is what you find. Then came Jesus from Galilee to John at the Jordan to be baptized by him. And John tried to prevent him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and you are coming to me. But Jesus answered and said to him, Permit it to be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. And then he, John the Baptist, allowed him, which is Jesus. 
When he had been baptized, Jesus came immediately up from the water and behold, the heavens were opened to him and he saw the spirit of God descending like a dove and lighting upon him uh, saying, oh, so, oh, I'm so sorry. And suddenly a voice came from heaven saying, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Now look at this. Jesus was baptized. We know he was baptized, but let's look at the manner in which he was baptized because Jesus is our example. When Jesus was baptized, he was where? In the water. In the water. When John baptized people, he baptized them at the river Jordan. The Bible says the reason he did that, or wait, I shouldn't say the reason he did that, but the Bible explains that he did that because there was much water there. Much water there. Now we've got a story in the Bible. If you have a Bible, turn with me in your Bible to the book of Acts. And when we get to Acts, we'll go to chapter eight. And I'm just going to read it out of the Bible here. Uh, we read in Acts chapter eight that Philip went down to the city of Samaria in verse five and preached Christ to them. And then we read a little further on here and I need to locate the right verse. And the verse here, you'll probably be able to tell me before I can tell you, we want to look in verse 35. It's further down the page. Acts chapter 8 and verse 35, the Bible says that Philip was speaking to a man who was a, uh, an official of the government of Queen Candace of Ethiopia. Philip opened his mouth and began at the same scripture and preached unto him Jesus. He had been reading Isaiah. Isaiah. And as they went on their way, they came to a certain water. The eunuch said, see, here is water. What hinders me to be baptized? And Philip said, if you believe with all your heart, you may. And he answered and he said, I believe that Jesus Christ is the son of God. And he commanded the chariot to stand still. And they went down both into the water, uh, both Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized him. And notice this. And when they were come up out of the water, the spirit of the Lord caught Philip away that the eunuch saw him no, no more. And he went on his way rejoicing. So this man was touched by the spirit of God. He believed that Jesus was the son of God. He was a follower of God. He said, why shouldn't I be baptized? Here's water. And Philip said, yes, you should. And when he was baptized, he went on his way rejoicing. And remember when Jesus was baptized, God the Father said, in this one I am well pleased. So apart from that, we can even look at the, well, the word baptize itself. Now, when I was, I don't know, a couple of weeks old, my dad took me to the church and the priest baptized me. But he didn't baptize me. He really christened me. And that's not baptism. Because the word baptize means to immerse, to plunge, to put all the way under. It's, it's like a burial. You know what bury means. And if somebody says, I buried something out in the backyard and it was sitting on top of the ground and had some dirt sprinkled over it, you would say that was not buried. Baptize means to immerse, to dip under. It's important. You can't be baptized any other way than by immersion. You've got to call that something else. Now, how did Jesus relate to this? What did he say about the level of importance of baptism? Oh, he spoke to this. He said, he who believes and is baptized shall be what? Saved. But he who believes not, who does not believe, will be condemned. So that's, that's, that's a strong recommendation. If you believe and you're baptized, 
you'll be saved. Now, does that mean that you're not saved by grace through faith, but you're saved by baptism? No, no. Jesus isn't saying, get baptized and be saved. He's saying, if you're saved, you will be baptized because that's what saved people do. It's a little bit like keeping the commandments of God. It's not that we keep the commandments of God in order to be saved. But once Jesus has entered your life, it's what you do. You keep the commandments of God. So once a person comes to faith in Jesus, God's expectation, or let's put this in a more positive way, God's invitation, God's strong suggestion is, his request is that you ought to be baptized. There are two important principles. You believe inwardly, but then you demonstrate that outwardly. You believe inwardly and you demonstrate outwardly. Baptism is the doorway to the church and God has willed it so. Bible baptism declares whose side you are on. To be washed clean in the waters of baptism is a public declaration of whose side you are on. Now, when you see somebody wearing a uniform that says Hungry Jacks, you never do think to yourself, does that person work for McDonald's? Because they declare that they work for Hungry Jacks. It's a declaration. It is clear that that person is on one side and not on the other. When you're baptized, you are stating, I am on God's side. I need Jesus. I've given my life to him. So why in the world would Jesus be baptized if he did not have any sin that needed to be washed away? He was not baptized as a confession of guilt. Jesus was baptized identifying with the human family. He was taking our sin upon himself and giving us, he took that later, and giving us an example that we should follow in his steps. Now, look at a very curious verse of the Bible with me. In Colossians 2 and verse 10, this is not the whole verse, but that's okay. It's verse 12, actually. The apostle says, buried with him in baptism. Now, ordinarily, you don't bury somebody until after they are what? I'm glad we understand that. It's important. If you were to bury somebody before they were dead, that would be a tragedy of immense proportions. But Paul says we are to be buried with him in baptism. You don't bury the living, you bury the what? So a person who is baptized should be what? Yeah, we're trying to figure this out, I guess. What in the world? Baptizing dead people. <laughs> now, that's what the Bible says, that you should not be baptized unless you're dead. Now, I don't mean heart attack dead, but dead to sin, dead to the old way of life, dead to self, you might say. Here's what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches that when you come to Jesus, the old you dies. And a new you replaces the old you. This is what Paul taught in Romans chapter 6. And here he refers to baptism earlier in the chapter. Likewise, you also reckon yourself to be, what's that word? Dead indeed to sin, but alive to God and Jesus Christ our Lord. Part of the problem in the church is that we got too many zombies around. They're the living dead. They came to faith in Jesus, but they didn't bother dying the death. And they're thinking, I'm going to hang on to my old life and live the new life. You know, that's spiritualism. If, figuratively speaking, you brought that old you back from the dead. Let that old you be dead and grow in faith in Jesus as a new you that God is continually growing, continually refining, continually sanctifying. 
What we read is that baptism is the grave. It's a grave. Let me show you something. We have a baptistry right here. I'm going to show you a grave. Look at that. There's water in there. There's water. It's wet. It's wet too. It's a grave I just showed you. It's a grave where we bury the old you. And the new you comes out of that to walk in newness of life. And so when your sins are buried, they're forgotten by God. Forgotten. Then you've got a new starting point. It's like the slate is wiped clean. It's like somebody with a criminal record and the government says, you know what? We just expunge that record. Someone might say, hey, you're a criminal. You say, no, I'm not. No record. Might have been a criminal once. Not anymore. The record is gone. You can say, might have been a sinner once. Might have been a lost person once. But God has saved me. He is refining me. He's growing me. My sins have been buried and forgotten by God. The old you is now under the guidance of Jesus. You get to say what Paul said to the Galatians in chapter 2 and verse 20. I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. Yet not I, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave his life for me. You see, I have been crucified. Paul was alive and kicking, but he says the old me, that mongrel that we talked about earlier, who used to go to churches and arrest people and drag them off and take them away to be persecuted and even executed, that all felt, he was dead. You know, when Paul came to the church, he come to Jerusalem, the people are like, oh, no, no, uh-uh. They didn't want it. They didn't want to mingle with Paul. They were scared of him. But that Paul died. And a new Paul was raised up to walk in newness of life. Baptism gives you a new direction. It gives you a new orientation in life. It is evidence that there has been a change in your experience. You declare it to be so. The Bible in the New Testament equates baptism with the Red Sea crossing. Now, let me see if I can make this clear for you. They had been in Egypt and there they were enslaved and were being uh, under the, and they were under the, the guidance and direction of the heathens. God says, now I'm going to get you out of there and take you home. I'm going to get you to the promised land. Come on now, let's get out. And they got out of there. They came down to a, a great big barrier called the Red Sea. God said, watch this. He opened up the Red Sea. Off you go. They went through the Red Sea. And the Bible writer says they were baptized under the cloud as they went through the sea. It was like baptism. They left the old life behind. Then baptism. And then they went on to the promised land. Took them a while. Same with you and me. We were under the control of a heathen power. Then God sets us free. And then baptism. Under a heathen power, set free, baptism, and then on to the promised land. It may take a while to get to the promised land. Some of us have been waiting a while. A little bit like Israel. You see, it was like the Red Sea crossing. And, uh, and God points that out as a beautiful illustration that we can be baptized and led by God's spirit towards the promised land. And so this is an interesting question. I think, I hope you think so too. If it's clear that baptism is by immersion, and it is, it's called baptism. We shouldn't be discussing it any further, but we got to, you know. Baptism, if it's by immersion, how did so many other methods of baptism sneak into the Christian church? Well, I'll tell you this. 
until the 13th century, baptism was universally carried out by immersion, by immersion. If you go to old cathedrals where today they don't baptize by immersion, you can find baptistries where they used to baptize by immersion. I took these photographs at the tower, the leaning tower of Pisa. Uh, there at the tower of Pisa, it's a cathedral complex. Uh, the tower is a bell tower. And if you just walk across the grass from the tower, you come to an interesting place. You come to a place where there's a baptistry. And you discover that at the leaning tower of Pisa, which is today administered by a church that does not practice baptism by immersion, they used to baptize by immersion. So a change came into Christianity. Why would that be? Well, I'll let the experts tell you. For several centuries after the establishment of Christianity, baptism was usually conferred by immersion. But since the 12th century, it may have been a century or so later than that, the practice of baptizing by infusion has prevailed in the Catholic Church as this manner is attended with less inconvenience than baptism by immersion. That's a funny old thing, isn't it? God asked for this, but it's just a little inconvenient. So I'll do something different. There's another reason, too, that people uh, baptize uh, by sprinkling. I remember when my one of my older brothers uh, became a father, and he didn't do anything about getting the baby christened. And my dad, he was uncomfortable about that. He said, you know, you ought to have that, have that baby baptized. He said, because that baby has original sin. And should that baby die with original sin on its soul, that baby cannot go to heaven. That's what the church taught us. It's not true. No one is born with original sin. No one is born guilty of sin. But imagine if you were. If you were actually born guilty, you wouldn't want to die guilty without having that sin washed away. So it's a false teaching that led to a false and certainly very unnecessary and unbiblical practice. So what do you do with babies then? If you don't sprinkle a little water on their head, what do you do about them? Do you baptize them? No, 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 you don't. Do you christen them? No, 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 you don't. Let's look at this. The Bible will tell us that there are steps towards being baptized. One of them is to repent. Why do we know that? Because in Acts 2 and verse 38, Peter said, repent and be baptized, every one of you. Repentance is sorrow for sin and turning away from sin. No, no, I didn't say repentance is perfection in the life. We're growing. But it is a purposed turning away from sin and embracing a new life. And so repentance is necessary. A second one, you won't be surprised by this. It's important to believe in Jesus as your personal savior. Uh, Jesus told Nicodemus he needed to be born again and spoke to him about this necessity of accepting Messiah into the heart and having a change of life. So we repent and we believe. Now, I think, I think we can do that. Repentance is within each one of us. Believing, I think we believe for the most part. And if, if you don't, I believe you could, and there's reason for you to do so. And then it's important to learn. Go, therefore, and teach all nations or, or make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. Teach them. That doesn't mean that before you're baptized, you need to have a PhD in, in religious studies. 
just means that you ought to know something about what it means to be a Christian, understand at least the very basics of faith and maybe a little more than the basics, so that as you have become a child of God, you know what it takes to be and live like and remain a child of God. It's important. Now, a baby cannot meet those criteria, not possible. So what's possible, what's appropriate rather for a child? What do we do with our children? I'll tell you what I do with mine. We did what Jesus, what, what Mary and Joseph did with Jesus. They took him to the temple. We took our children to the church. And the pastor at the church dedicated our babies to Jesus, dedicated them to God. And, and then we recommitted our lives so that we would raise our kids in the fear and admonition of the Lord. That's what Mary and Joseph did with Jesus. You don't baptize your babies or sprinkle water on their heads. It's not biblical at all. And it certainly, frankly, doesn't accomplish anything. When Jesus spoke to Nicodemus, and I referred to this a moment ago, Nicodemus tried something I would call righteousness by flattery. Oh, Lord, we know that you are a great teacher come from God because you do all these miracles. And Jesus cut right through that and spoke to the man's heart. He said, you must be born again. That's what he said. Nicodemus, you know, tried to play the dummy. He said, oh, what does that mean? He knew because Jews used that phrase. If somebody converted to Judaism from outside, they were said to be born again. He knew. What does that mean? Do I need to re-enter my mother's womb and be born a second time? And Jesus said, no, no. Unless you are born of water and the spirit, you cannot enter into the kingdom of God. Born of water. That's baptism and born of the spirit. I don't want you to be confused about what being born of the spirit is really all about. It's a simple thing. The Bible says as many as are led by the spirit of God, they are the sons of God. Uh, John 1 and verse 12, as many as received him to them gave he power to become the sons of God. When you receive Jesus, you receive power, grace for holy living, forgiveness for your sins and power to live With Jesus in your heart, Jesus living his life in you. When you receive Jesus, you receive power. No, I don't mean I've got power now like some mad dictator, but the power of heaven fills you, rests upon you, works through you. Christianity, I'm going to say this again. Christianity isn't just swapping one belief system for another. Christianity is an experience where your heart and the heart of Jesus are united, bound up together, where Jesus comes into your life and lives his life through you. Powerful. You can't be the same as you used to be. You might have been a drug addict. God will God will get you off that. You might have been angry, uh, drunk, immoral. You might have been dishonest. God changes you understand it it doesn't mean one change everything changed forever there's you're going to grow but God makes you his child and there's power in your life so that you aren't damned to live that old life for the rest of your life what a wonderful thing Christianity isn't swapping one belief system for another it's swapping the world for the power of God in your life come on and say amen tonight that's what it's all about amen you submit to Jesus. Surrender to Jesus. There's a throne in your heart. Jesus sits upon that throne and he lives and rules in your life. We surrender and Jesus lives his life in us. Look at this. Peter said to them, repent and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins. And you shall receive the what? The gift of the Holy Ghost. You are born of the spirit. Water baptism, that's born of water. 
receiving the Holy Spirit, born of the Spirit. That's conversion. Conversion. The water doesn't save you. The water is a symbol of the saving grace and power of Jesus in your life. You ought not let wild horses keep you away from being baptized. Let nothing prevent you from being baptized. Now look at this. This says in Galatians 3 verse 27. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have what? Put, when you put on Christ, it changes. Let me share a story with you. I, I grew up in, the, uh, in the, a very ritzy part of New Zealand called Ngaroa Wahia. Now, I'm glad you don't know the truth about Ngaroa Wahia. And I'm not even going to tell you. I'm just going to tell you it's very high class and very upper crust. And it's not a lie. It's a sermonic license. That's all. It's sermonic license. But one thing that we had, we had a great high school rugby first 15. Good team. I know there's some players here, former uh, St. Paul's players. Uh, comparatively, we were far superior. <laughs> far superior. To play for the first 15 in New Zealand, that was, that's a pretty big deal. It still is. Uh, it's a big deal. And, and five boys in my family, my four older brothers, had all played for the, for the top rugby team. And then it was like, well, will John make the team? And I did. I made the team. And I remember our first, our first game was against St. John's, a boys' school in Hamilton. And we went up there to their place. And what was cool about being in the top rugby team, the first 15, as opposed to the second 15, the first 15, we had these new, nicely designed playing jerseys. The only people in the world who wore those jerseys was the high school first 15 from our school. And being in the first 15 brought some privileges with it. For one, the girls at least noticed you. They at least knew you. They'd come to the game. You'd run out there looking athletic, and you'd run by the girls. You'd think, are they looking at me? Of course, some of us, we've got that all the time, but, you know. And also, it got you in really good with the school principal because he was the biggest fan of high school rugby. I remember, I remember getting kicked out of math class one day, and I got sent to the principal, and I went in there, and Mr. Murphy said, I said, why are you here, John? And I said, oh, you know, Mrs. I won't mention her name. Her sister might be here. Uh, Mrs. O, Mrs. What's her name? Mrs. Dragonface sent me here. And he said, ah, I saw the game on Saturday. He played well. Oh, thank you, sir. Yeah, it was a good win. The boys did well. How's the team coming along? Oh, good, sir. And he'd send us back to class. Did you talk to the principal? Yes, miss. We had a, we had a good talk. Everything's good now. I tell you what, I got sent to the principal's office a lot, and we always just had these conversations. There was no sweat. Except once the principal called me to the principal's office. What could that be about? Now, as, as God is my witness, I was, we, were, we were penalized. Sorry, I'm, I'm, the older I get, the better I was. We, we, we were penalized, and the ball came rolling towards me, and I kind of jumped over the ball, and the ball bounced at the same time. So in actual fact, I kicked the ball away. And my story is that I didn't mean to. I probably sort of meant to, but Mr. Murphy saw me do that, which is a very unsporting thing to do. And so on Monday, he calls me to his office. Yes, sir, sit down. <laughs> no problem in math cl mathematics class, sir. No, 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 it's far worse than that. This is serious, boy. What's the problem, sir? I wonder if my mother died or something. Was he? This is a serious boy. <laughs> what is it, sir? I saw what you did in the game on Saturday. Yes? Never kick the ball away like that. 
That's an unsporting thing to do. We, are, we, have, we have good sportsmanship in the school. Oh, man, he nailed me to the wall. So being in the first 15 was a big deal, you know. Had some real responsibilities. So we get to St. John's, and, and I go into the, uh, the changing rooms, and I was, I was playing number eight in those days, and, uh, and there was my jersey hanging on the hook. And I, I, I took it down, or it was like I was holding a, a Bible or... or my, my firstborn, I probably didn't hold my firstborn as, as, as reverently as I held this jersey. And, ah, ah, and I put the jersey on and this amazing, amazing transformation came over me. I was six feet, one inches tall at the time, but suddenly I grew to be about six feet, nine. And my chest, and I was bulletproof. I could have walked through fire. I could have chewed on nails and swallowed them down. Suddenly, because I put on the jersey, there was this transformation that took place. Now listen, this isn't as crass an equation as you think it might be. When you put on Christ, something happens. Now when I put on that jersey, the the realization said, oh, I'm representing my school. I'm on the top team. I'm in the first 15. I'm a, I'm, a, I'm a very small somebody, but I'm a somebody now. I've achieved something. Whoa. And I walked a little taller and my chest just poked out a little, little further. And, and I don't mean in an arrogant way, but I, I, I was a member of the first 15. And we were actually a very good team. Our coach went on and coached the, 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 the New Zealand secondary schools team. And we had some absolutely outstanding players who went on to play for the country and so on. Uh, so I was in that team. It mattered. I put the jersey on and the jersey said, man, you belong. You're part of a winning team. We didn't win every game, but we won many more than we lost. You are part of the top team. Now, when you are baptized, you put on Christ. You can walk a little taller. You can afford to let your chest stick out just a little further. And I don't mean with arrogant human pride, but you know then you are a child of the king. You are in the top team. You're on Jesus' side. He's the captain. It's a winning team. No losses when Jesus leads the team out onto the field. Are you following me now? When you put on Christ, you are on Christ's team. This is good news. It's a big deal when you're baptized into Christ. You're put on Christ. When you are baptized, you have the absolute assurance that your sins are forgiven. The Holy Spirit is given to you and you are adopted into the family of God. Think about that royalty. You know what I don't understand? I mean, I'm, I'm cool with the royal family and everything. But what I don't understand is that some people are fixated on the royal family. William and Kate can't change their mind. It's on the front page. Meghan Markle marries. What's his name? Harry. Every time you turn on the Internet, boom, there's Meghan Markle. I don't care. Let her get on with her life. I tell you what you ought to be fixated about. You ought to be fixated with the idea that you, when you accept Jesus, are royalty. Royalty. A far greater royal family, and I mean this with respect, than the British royal family or any other royal family. You are royalty. A child of the king. You are an heir to the throne. An heir to the riches of glory. This is great news. Can you say amen? Amen. Baptism. It's the doorway to all of that. You aren't going to say, oh, no, the door's open, but I'm not going to go through that door. You're going through because Jesus invites you through. 
Now, uh, some people have been baptized. They say, could I be baptized again? Well, the answer is yes. I mean, you should be. Uh, the apostles met a group of believers who had been baptized, but their knowledge was deficient. And then when the knowledge grew, the Bible says they were baptized again in the name of the Lord Jesus. They hadn't been baptized accepting Jesus Christ as Messiah, as Lord and Savior. And so I would say that the Bible indicates that if you've been baptized, but, but your knowledge has been deficient. For example, perhaps you hadn't been keeping all of the commandments of God. Perhaps there was just so, you were just a baby and never, never grew and then you've grown. Perhaps it's time to be rebaptized. Then there's another time you can be rebaptized, I would say. And that's if you've come to Christ and then you've fallen away into sin. And then you've come back to faith in Christ. Be baptized again. Rebaptized. Now, I don't mean if you had a hard day and you, 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 you said something unkind to somebody and so now I need to be rebaptized. Well, that's not the case. Uh, instead, if you've come to faith in Jesus and you fall away, you change sides. It's like if you divorce your spouse and then you were to get, re- get back together, you'd get remarried. You just wouldn't, you know, you wouldn't just connect. So it's appropriate to be rebaptized at times. It really is. Baptism, I mean, it's like a wedding. It's a new beginning. It's two lives being united. Your life with Jesus. You with the Christian church. In marriage, two people come together. They live together. They grow together. They develop and they change together. And that's what happens when your life and Jesus' life become one life. You grow with Jesus, in Jesus. You develop in Jesus. You change as Jesus changes your heart and your life. God's grace continues to work on you and in you. Speaking of people who were baptized, the Bible says, then they that gladly received his word were baptized. You get that? If you've gladly received the word of God, this is the Bible. I appreciate it. I want to follow it. I want it to be the foundation of my life. If you've gladly received his word, there's nothing keeping you from being baptized. It's a symbol of the death of the old nature, rebirth in newness of life. We remember Jesus' death and resurrection and baptism. We die, we're buried, we're raised up again. Peter called it the washing away of the filth of the flesh and the answer of a good conscience towards God. Remember, baptism, you're dying to the old way of life. Your sins are being buried in a watery grave. You are being raised up out of that watery grave to walk in newness of life. And you're making a declaration, I've chosen Jesus. You're also making a declaration. You you cannot misunderstand this. It's not a declaration, I've arrived. I deserve to be a member. No, no. You're saying, I can't make it on my own. I need Jesus in my life. I got to die and then be raised up out of that water with Jesus living his life in me. It is an absolute declaration of your recognition of complete and utter and total dependence on Jesus Christ. In fact, the Bible says that those who were not baptized were those who had rejected the counsel of God. There are several stories in the Bible that make it clear that baptism is a wonderful blessing. One of them is a, is a story that's by symbol. He wasn't baptized, but he was. But the story speaks about the experience of baptism. Man was Naaman. He was in, he was a Syrian man. He was a captain in the army, big shot. And the Bible tells us that he had leprosy. That was a terminal illness. It was going to kill him. And he didn't know what to do. There was no remedy, but he went to see the prophet 
And the prophet said, go down there to the Jordan and immerse yourself in the water seven times. Go under, come up seven times. That'll take care of it. He said, not doing it. It's a scummy old river. We've got better rivers back there in Syria. Thankfully, he had some advisors who said to him, come on, man, just do it. He just did it. Went down to the water. My expectation is he laid aside his royal garments and then he went out into the Jordan River. I recently baptized my kids in the Jordan River. That was awesome. That was really cool. My son and my daughter. That was a nice experience. And Naaman goes out into the Jordan River and he goes under the water and he comes up out of the water. A leper. And he does it a second time and a third time and a fourth time and a fifth time and a sixth time. Now, here's what's interesting. In the Bible, leprosy can symbolize sin. So this leper being baptized equates to a sinner being baptized. On the seventh time, down he went, up he came. Where was the leprosy? Gone. His skin was new. He'd been remade. He'd been delivered from the death sentence. And when you come up out of the water of baptism, the leprosy of sin is gone. You've been remade, recreated. You are pure now in the sight of Almighty God. What an experience. Remember the story of Saul who became Paul? We talked about it before. This man, what was he doing? He was on his way to Damascus. And what happened? He was on his way down to Damascus and a bright light came and he was blinded. And then he was taken to Damascus and he was told by that man, Ananias, God has called you. Let me ask you a question. Has God called you? Well, if you're in any doubt, let me assure you that he has. You're not here tonight because he hasn't called you. You're here tonight because you have a desire to understand the word of God, because God is working in your life, because you love God or you're learning to love God. God has called you. And so Ananias might say the same thing to you. God has called you. And then he would say to you perhaps what he said, what he said to Paul. Why tarriest thou? Arise and what? Okay, why tarriest thou? That's old English. Modern English, he would simply have said what? What are you waiting for? Can I ask you that same question tonight? What are you waiting for? What are you waiting for? Arise and be baptized. Remember, how'd we get here? Sin got us to the lowest of low places. The wonderful story of the book of Revelation is that God's people will be redeemed and restored. They're called saints. You know, I love that. God doesn't call them cleaned up sinners. He doesn't call them recreated sinners. He doesn't call them rewired scoundrels. Saints. No mention of the past. Why is that? Because the past is forgiven. It has been buried and forgotten by God. Would you like God to do that for you? Bury your past. Know that you are prepared for everlasting life. 